let us worship God. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. The hour cometh and now is when the true worshippers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is a spirit and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Let us pray. O Lord, our God, we give thanks unto thee that thou who art creator of heaven and earth and all things therein art mindful of us. We thank thee that there is nothing too small nor too great for thee. And so we come to cast our cares upon thee who carest for us, to commit ourselves, our loved ones, our hopes, into thine omnipotent hands. We give thanks unto thee, our Father, that hitherto thou hast blessed us, undertaken for us, and undergirded us in all our ways. And we thank thee that the best is yet to come for us in Jesus Christ. Therefore we praise thee. In his name, amen. Our scripture this morning is Numbers 1, verses 5 through 54, and our subject, the military census. The military census, Numbers 1, 5 through 54. And these are the names of the men that shall stand with you. Of the tribe of Reuben, Eliezer, the son of Shadueer. Then verses 6 through 14 give a list of the men from each tribe who are to assist in the census. And verse 16, these were the renowned of the congregation, princes of the tribes of their fathers, heads of thousands in Israel. And Moses and Aaron took these men which are expressed by their names, and they assembled all the congregation together on the first day of the second month, and they declared their pedigrees after their families by the house of their fathers according to the number of the names from twenty years old and upward by their poles. And as the Lord commanded Moses, so he numbered them in the wilderness of Sinai. And the children of Reuben, Israel's eldest son, by their generations after their families, by the house of their fathers, according to the number of the names, by their poles, every male from twenty years old and upward, all that were able to go forth to war. Those that were numbered of them, even of the tribe of Reuben, were forty and six thousand and five hundred. Of the children of Simeon, by their generations, after their families, by the house of their fathers, those that were numbered of them, according to the number of the names, by their poles, every male from twenty years old and upward, all that were able to go forth to war. Then the twenty-fourth verse, of the children of Gad, by their generations, after their families, by the house of their fathers, according to the number of the names, from twenty years old and upward, all that were able to go to war. The twenty-sixth verse, 
of the children of Judah by their generations, after their families, by the house of their fathers, according to the number of the names from twenty years old and upward, all that were able to go forth to war. The twenty-eighth verse and twenty-ninth is of the children of Issachar, the thirtieth and thirty-first, the children of Zebulun, the thirty-second of the children of Joseph, both Ephraim, and in verses thirty-four and thirty-five, Manasseh, the two tribes of Joseph. Then verse thirty-six deals with the children of Benjamin, thirty-eight following, the children of Dan, and forty following, the children of Asher, and then forty-two following, the children of Naphtali. And then it tells us in verse 47, But the Levites after the tribe of their fathers were not numbered among them. For the Lord had spoken unto Moses, saying, Only thou shalt number the tribe of Levi. Now thou shalt not number the tribe of Levi, neither take the sum of them among the children of Israel. But thou shalt appoint the Levites over the tabernacle of the testimony, and over all the vessels thereof, and over all things that belong to it. They shall bear the tabernacles and all the vessels thereof, and they shall minister unto it, and shall encamp round about the tabernacle. And when the tabernacle setteth forth, the Levites shall take it down, and when the tabernacle is to be pitched, the Levites shall set it up, and the stranger that cometh nigh shall be put to death. And the children of Israel shall pitch their tents, every man by his own camp, and every man by his own standard, throughout their hosts. But the Levites shall pitch round about the tabernacle of testimony, that they, there be no wrath upon the congregation of the children of Israel. And the Levites shall keep the charge of the tabernacle of testimony. And the children of Israel did according to all that the Lord commanded Moses. So did they. In verses 4 through 19, the fact of the census is cited, and the representatives of each of the twelve tribes, Levi not being counted, are named in verses 5 through 15. In verses 20 through 46, we are given the results of the census, a total in verse 46 of 603,550,000 fighting men. This is similar to the results cited in Exodus 38, verse 26. In that verse, the number came from all the men, twenty years old and upward, who paid the half-shekel head tax. Now, what this means is, from the number of able-bodied men, twenty years old and older, they knew the head count. But this census was by tribes or clans. So this census was a military census in terms of the clans or tribes. About 40 years later, another census, just before they went into Canaan, gave a slightly lower total, 601,730. There were, however, great variations in this latter census in the tribal count. In verses 47 to 54 of our chapter, the work of the Levites is cited. 
Now, when reference is made in verse 2 to tribes, this can be translated as families or clans. The words are, in Old English, very much similar, virtually identical. Verse 3 tells us it is the census of all that are able to go forth to war in Israel, all who were eligible for military service. This indicates clearly that the aged and the crippled were not counted in the census. Since God was the king of his covenant people, a census was exclusively his privilege and for his purposes. A census was thus a religious fact. At one time, the U.S. census was a careful account of the religious faith of the people of the various religious bodies, including denominations with less than 100 members. And it was a record also of the histories, doctrines, and activities of each group. That's an amazing fact. There were two fat volumes of a census every year that listed the religious affiliation of all the people. If you had no more than a little group meeting in your home, you were counted as a religious body, what you stood for, why you were separated from other bodies, what your history was. All this was recorded in the census. One volume gave the data Another volume gave the historical information. This is how important a religious census of the United States was regarded prior to World War II. After World War II, of course, this kind of census taking ended. There are a number of important aspects to the census of our text. First, it was a census of the strength of the tribes or clans, not of Israel as a monolithic unit. Military action was normally by tribal or clan action under the command of a central authority. Hebrew documents give the cutoff age for able-bodied men as 60. So it meant that able-bodied men from 20 to 60 were eligible for military service. This kind of practice was common in a good deal of Europe until fairly modern times. It was certainly true in places like Scotland. Some of history's most effective armies have been precisely this kind of army, where there has been a strong clan loyalty. And, of course, the longest to have this were the Scots and the Welsh. The power of a common purpose, united with a strong blood bond, has been militarily very important. The emphasis on loyalty to the central state power 
is a modern emphasis. It has not been good in terms of military action. Revolutionary France replaced the historic regions of France also with artificially created departments so that instead of France being divided, although the loyalties are still there, the Bretons, the uh, Burgundians, and so on, these were wiped out. The boundaries were abolished to create artificial departments. This was to destroy the local loyalties. This has been done throughout the world. And because of it, the ability of armies has been decreased dramatically because there is no longer the close ties, the close common purpose. In the United States, of course, we have the same kind of thing. Years ago, I baptized a retired U.S. Army officer, a remarkable man, 74 years of age when he was baptized. He had first served in the Spanish-American War. He served with Pershing in Mexico against Pancho Villa. He served in World War I and trained troops in World War II. And he said in the old days in the army, you knew every man under you by name. You knew his family. You made sure he wrote letters home. You knew what his strength and his weakness was. And that made the unit a better unit in combat. But all that has been destroyed. And of course, today the move to wipe out the states and to create ten federal districts is well underway. Mississippi just became the 23rd state on November the 6th to abolish its boundaries preparatory to creating ten federal districts. The head tax of Exodus 38:26 indicated the number of able-bodied men in Israel. The purpose of this census that we are dealing with now was to establish the tribal or clan militias. God honored the clan loyalties and made them basic to Israel's military action. In the 20th century, as both the purposes of war and the constituency of armies have grown more abstract, the willingness of men to fight has decreased. A depersonalized army is vulnerable. This is why very highly personal guerrilla forces have an intense personal dedication and are very difficult for armies to deal with. Then second, the census made clear that Israel was an army on the march from slavery to freedom, from the wilderness 
to the promised land. Whereas at the beginning God had saved them miraculously, the time was now come for them to battle for their inheritance. They were not going to be raptured into the promised land. God's empowering grace was the preparation for warfare, not for inaction. In his hymn, Am I a Soldier of the Cross, Isaac Watts ably depicted the expectations of false faith. Must I be carried to the skies on flowery beds of ease, while others fought to win the prize and sailed through bloody seas? Salvation required Israel to be future-oriented. They could not rest contented with the wilderness. Now, our idea of the wilderness years is governed by our knowledge of what Arabia is now. And so our ideas of the wilderness journey are very unrealistic. Arabia was once a highly forested land with many streams. It was underpopulated, and it was well able to contain Israel on the march. In fact, the land was destroyed because cutting down the forest to make charcoal to sell to Egypt was for generations a major business in Arabia. Therefore, life in the wilderness was not too unpleasant. There was grazing for all their herds. To remain content with the wilderness was no doubt a temptation to some. Others wanted to return to Egypt. The covenant Lord, however, required them to look ahead to the promised land and to growth in the covenant law and life in the promised land. Then third, The names of some of the clan leaders indicate that some kind of religious motivation was present because almost all the names reflect the covenant and God. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean that the men were altogether faithful to their names, but basically so. In verse 6, Shlumiel means at peace with God or my friend is God. Aminadab, in verse 7, means the divine kinsman is generous. Nathanel, in verse 8, means God hath given. Eliab is God is father. Elishama means God hath heard, both in verse 10. Amahud, the divine kinsman, is glorious. Gamaliel, God is my reward. And Padazur, the rock hath redeemed. Abidin means the Father hath judged, verse 11. Ahiezer is the divine brother is a help. And Amishaddai, the people of Shaddai, verse 12, Shaddai referring to God. Pagael means the lot or fate is given by God, in verse 13. Eliasaph, God hath added. And dual or rule, God is a friend. The name is a shortened form of Darul. This is in verse 14. Ahira means the divine brother is a friend in verse 15. 
However, we have one curious name in the lot. Nashon, verse 7. It means serpent. Now, while these religious names were no guarantee of faith, they do indicate that to some extent the covenant governed people's thinking. Then forth in verse 16, the clan leaders listed in verses 5 through 15 are called the heads of thousands in Israel. These twelve men were heads of family groups of a thousand, that is, a thousand families. The thousand was a subgroup within the tribe or clan. All such clan leaders were responsible for all families under their rule. Allegiance to the law and the focus of authority on the tribal level rested with these men. Under them were the hundreds, and the existence of hundred courts is well documented in English history, and they existed in the American colonies, so that wherever there were a hundred families, there was a court and a self-governing unit. This meant decentralization and an emphasis on the family and local authority, because the hundred referred to a hundred families. While this was no insurance against faithlessness, this structure meant a particular strength in times of faith. Then fifth, Levi was not included in the census and in the militia because priority remained with them in the maintenance of the center. In the modern world, the core of the educational curriculum is no longer the Bible. It is what is called liberal arts. Only they are neither liberal nor very good in the way of arts. Liberal means free. Arts that lead or school people into freedom. When the Bible was the core of the liberal arts curriculum, it trained people for freedom. How artificial the modern liberal arts is became very clear when World War II broke out. It was regarded by Washington as the least important aspect of the university's curriculum and treated accordingly. This Levitical exemption from the military census is the legal basis for the continuing exemption of the clergy from military draft in the United States. Then sixth, the tribes were to encamp around the sanctuary. Every man by his own camp and every man by his own standard, according to verse 52. There were thus four standards, one for each direction, north, west, east, and south, and three tribes on each side, and the four standards were those of Judah, Reuben, Ephraim, and Dan. Each of the four had two other tribes under their leadership. The Levites were separate. They were right around the sanctuary, the sanctuary in the middle of the camp, then the Levites around it, and then outside the twelve tribes. They were there that there be no wrath upon the congregation of the children of Israel, verse 53 tells us. 
The other tribes were to protect the people as a whole. The Levites had to protect the sanctuary. Any profane trespass against the sanctuary was punishable by death. No law gives any human agency this power, and according to one Jewish tradition, God, rather than a human court, would look to the punishment. The census of the twelve tribes gave varying results. Judah had the most, with seventy-four, and Benjamin had only thirty-five thousand. In the New Testament, our Lord calls the twelve disciples to replace the twelve tribes. This fact is seldom taken seriously. We are too much influenced by the Roman imperial centralizing pattern, whereas the biblical standard is unity, not union. Unity is in the faith. Union is organizational. Now, this does not mean a toleration of false theologies, but it does militate against a false ecumenicism, which seeks, of course, to centralize all church authorities. Man's attempts to centralize authority have as their presupposition a belief that a full awareness of the nature of truth and authority rests in the man-centered institution. And this is a dangerous illusion. Let us pray. <clears throat> our Lord and our God, we thank Thee for Thy Word, for Thy Word is truth. And Thou hast ordained the family as the basic unit of society, of the church, of the state, of all things. Use us as thine instruments to reestablish the biblical pattern, to recognize that the key to the future is in our hands as families, and that thou wilt only bless thine ordained way. In Christ's name, amen. <clears throat> Are there any questions now with regard to our lesson? He was preparing them for battle. They had to fight. He had worked the miracles. He had destroyed Egypt. Now they had to do it. They couldn't simply walk in. They couldn't be raptured, as I said, into the promised land. And it's that kind of thinking that God is striking at here. He's telling them, you're going to have to fight. So get ready. The numbering was for their knowledge, then. It's enough to understand their strength. I couldn't get that. So the numbering was for their knowledge, then. It was to let them know you are 
being numbered because now you are an army. So because you are counted by the heads of your tribes, you, you've been drafted. Yes. What lesson is there in this for us today? Uh, could you speak up a bit? Yes. What lesson is there in that for us today? It's to recognize God's basic pattern, the family. To recognize that we've warped the whole nature of life today in that we expect Washington to do everything. Now, consider what would happen if you applied the premises of this uh, chapter to our life today. It would mean that you would have state militias, state armies, not a national one. We still have remnants of a, na a state guard, although it's disappearing. Now, this would mean that Washington could not plunge into a war heedlessly. What Bush has done to deal with the present is to consult with Gorbachev and to consult with the UN, but he has not consulted with the American people or Congress. Well, what would happen if his army had to come from the 50 states? And they told him, nothing doing. Or if the word from the 50 states was, well, there are 10 who are ready to go along with you, but the rest, no. You see, it would alter the political process dramatically. It would mean there would be none of the kind of thing we've had in this century when against popular opinion we were put into two world wars and we were put into other countries as Vietnam when the people were not in favor of it. It would radically alter the political process. And this is the kind of thing that uh, we've abandoned, we've gotten away with. It began after the French Revolution. After the 1790s, progressively, this kind of centralization began to take over one country after another. And the results have been deadly. And this is why, of course, in the modern army, there is less efficiency, more efficient weapons. But a very large number of soldiers never fire a gun. They go through the motions. They take cover. The firepower has decreased because it's not their war. And they're in the midst of impersonal surroundings. So it has been very bad, and its consequences are very much with us. Yes. Were the soldiers from these tribes um, given the right to say no if they were asked to go fight? The tribe could refuse, yes. It was a tribal decision. It was a family decision, in other words. And we know that in some instances they did not. And uh, 
It could be for a bad reason at times. For example, if you read the Song of Deborah, she levels a charge against Reuben for not joining in out of laziness and cowardice when they were getting rid of an oppressor. So they had a stronger army. And this is why God cut back through Gideon on the forces that were going to fight in that particular battle or campaign. He wanted the willing-hearted. Yes? Uh, was an individual member of a family uh, obligated to go, or could he individually make a decision not to go? No, he had to go, but it was a tribal decision. The clan decided. And this is the way it was in Scotland, too, for a long, long time, and in Wales. The clan would decide, or it could be a subsection of the clan. And uh, then the decision was binding upon all the members. But it was not a decision that was lightly entered into by the clan leader, because they were his kinsmen. He was responsible to them. And he couldn't make the decision abstractly with total disregard for those who are under his authority. Yes? What about the uh, man who was recently married and had, had no fruit? He was exempt from the draft. Well, the law exempted those who were recently married. For a year, they were to be at home. Exempted cowards, too, right? Well, and those who were... Uh, afraid to fight. Yes, they were exempted. Yes. I was particularly struck by the closing comments you made concerning the differences between union and unity, or unity and union. And I would like to ask you if there is any uh, connection or relationship to... Uh, the words of Jesus as given to John in the letters to the churches in Revelation where Jesus points out in the very beginning that they have left their first love which I would take to be the unity of the church to its head and have replaced that unity with a union that he refers to as the deeds first and then the doctrines in a following letter of the Nicolaitans. Yes. Well, they had abandoned their uh, zeal and concern for the faith, but it was not uh, union. That did not come until centuries later. As a matter of fact, uh, when you go through the seven ecumenical councils of the early church, you find there was no attempt to create union. What they would do when confronted by heretical doctrines was to summon men from all sides together so that some of the heretics were summoned to an ecumenical council and they would discuss the matter, what scripture said, and so on, then come to a decision. 
they would pronounce anathemas upon all who departed from the orthodox faith. But that did not mean they tried to compel them to unite. That came later. They might excommunicate them if they were in their jurisdiction. But there was no attempt to force a union on everyone. Business of forcing uh, unions, uh, then would you say, uh, originated after the church became centralized in Rome? Well, uh, to a degree, but even that centralization did not take place until the Council of Trent after the Reformation. And since then, it's taken place in all the Protestant churches virtually. So it's a been an aspect of the modern world essentially. There was some of it early that began, but nothing such as we know now. This is why ecumenism then meant being united in the faith. Now it's uniting the churches, the institutions together institutionally. And that's a very, very different thing. Yes. The distinction between unity and union is what, then? The difference between spirit and government, or spirit and law, or what? No, it isn't. Uh, it's institutionalization versus the faith. So, it's the, the faith maintained. And it was theologians who dealt with this matter in the councils. Now, when you have an ecumenical council, so-called, it's organizational heads that come together and try to say what uh, the church should do. And that's very different. Well, yes, this will be the last question. Our time is almost over. We're talking about an additional draft, a new draft, it'll be interesting to see whether or not clergy are exempted from this draft this time around. Yes, uh, some of the announcements of a new draft have mentioned women. It's been in the latter paragraph or two of some of the uh, reports. So, every time we go into a war, we come out with less freedom, because the war begins at the top, a centralized top, and therefore it opposes the individualism and the particularity of those below. Well, let us unite now in prayer. Our Father, we thank Thee for Thy Word, which speaks for our everyday problems, burdens, needs, and conditions. Give us grace to hear thy word and to obey it. We thank thee that in all things thou art very near, and thy way is not something remote and abstract but as close as we are to ourselves. And now go in peace, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. Bless you and keep you, guide and protect you, this day and always. Amen.